Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Introduction. Thank you for coming. Uh, those of you at home don't know the weather outside is insane. I'm half expecting you to say, can we please have class outside, which is what I normally would get a day like today, and I'd be inclined to give it to you, uh, but we're stuck indoors for now. Um, thanks for coming. Uh, out of curiosity, are any of you Galicianers? Oh, and you admit it freely. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it's wonderful to have you here. As you will see as we go through today, um, I think Galicianers have a terribly bad rap, and for reasons that are historically uh, constrained, and we know why they have those reasons, you have a lot to be proud of, and I'm going to hope to give you a taste of that now. Um, the basic format, we only have about 45 minutes to do Galicia. How is that possible? So what I'm going to do is to give you about, I don't know, 10 or 15, 20 minutes on the beginning of Galicia, when Galicia is created by the Austrian Empire in 1772, all the way up till its restructuring in 1867. So we'll have 10 or 15 minutes just to get a sense of how the province was forged, what it was like there, and how these Jews began to develop their own identity. And then we'll look, the more interesting for me, the second half, from 1867 until World War I, the second half of the history of Galicianers, and to look in more detail at their economics, at their religious life, and at their political life, and the kind of changes that are happening at the end of the 19th century. So that's the sort of uh, trajectory uh, I have uh, way more material that I'd like to share with you than I can possibly do. I have way more slides than I can possibly show you. Uh, so I, I will go do as best I can. Please do not hesitate if you have questions at the end, especially uh, to ask them, and I'll answer them as, as best I can. So, Galicia. Uh, Galicia is formed. It is forged by the conquest of that part of Poland by Austria in 1772. It was one of the largest areas of Austria, uh, about 31,600 square miles. It was about a quarter of the Austrian Empire, of the Austrian part of the Austrian Empire after the split, after 1867. Uh, have any of you been to Galicia out of curiosity? So you know it is stunningly beautiful. It is breathtakingly beautiful. It is still to this day largely a rural area on the other side of the Carpathian Mountains, so it seemed even more distant and strange from Austria uh, than just by its miles. Ethnic population in the, 19th century, in the 18th and 19th century was largely three groups of people. Uh, Jews, who were about maybe 11% of the population, more to the east than to the west. Uh, Poles, who were more concentrated in the western part, west of the San River. And Ukrainians, more concentrated in the eastern part, east of the San River. You still have a Polish minority there, but it was largely Ukrainian with a Jewish minority. Uh, these terms are somewhat... Flexible. Uh, Jews, I think we have a sense that Jews knew they were Jews and people knew Jews were Jews. But Polish and Ukrainian identity were still in flux early on. Uh, it's probably better to say they were the ancestors of later Poles and the ancestors of later Ukrainians. And I'll give you an example of that in just a few minutes, how, how we know that. Uh, that's roughly how the demographics uh, played out. When Austria uh, conquered the area, these were Eastern European Jews. That means... Yiddish speaking, that means religiously traditional, that means economically largely commercial class, which I'll come back to a little while later, but just to give you a sense of that. Uh, in the mid-19th century, something like 77% of Poles were involved in agriculture. Maybe 95% of Ukrainians were involved in agriculture. About 14% of Jews were in that sector. Or to flip it the other way, Jews were only 2% of the agriculturalists, so agricultural uh, class, versus 71% of those in trade, 36% uh, in industry, and so on. So it's 
ethnicity reinforced by language, reinforced by religion, but also reinforced by occupation. All of these things, which is normal for Eastern Europe. But over time, they'll develop in a different way. Uh, the population uh, is about 200, we don't know exactly, maybe 200,000 uh, during its conquest, so doubling the Austrian Jewish population. Now, unlike Russia, there, were, there had been Jews in Austria. When Russia conquered Eastern Europe, it was the first time they had Jews in quite a while. When Austria comes and conquers Poland, uh, their empress had had experience with Jews, and she was not a fan of them, to put it mildly. Her inclination uh, was to, not, to, to expel them or restrict them in various ways. This is Maria Theresa right in front of you. Uh, she wants to curb its growth. She puts various uh, limitations on the right to marry. She has a special poll tax that only Jews have to pay and so on, special punishments for Jewish vagrants and things like this. She largely leads the administration, the, the pre-modern Kahal, it was called, Kahila, intact. Uh, but she was... was uh, uh, interested in controlling them in, the, in this sense. Her son, far more, faith, far more faith, uh, famous Joseph II, he was a true enlightened absolutist. He wants to break down all castes in his new empire, and that means Jews as well. He wants to bring the Jews, along with everyone else, into a more centralized and efficient state. And this wasn't necessarily any kind... Some of the older scholarship talks about this as sort of, sort of uh, anti-Semitic project. It was not anti-Semitic... Uh, in that sense at all. It was really a, pro a far more broader project to Germanize the empire in the, in the sense of bringing them into this centralized, new centralized state. Uh, so, uh, and he only lived 10 more years, but he had an impact during those, during those years. So here are some of the edicts that come out of the Joseph II uh, of that period. Uh, restricting communal autonomy, pushing Jews to adopt German surnames, to push Jews to attend German language schools, which I'll talk about in a second, uh, to draft the Jews. Now, the draft the Jews is not like with Nicholas uh, in, in Russia. It's a little bit different. If you think about it, the draft is actually a kind of equalization of the Jewish status. The Jews had been exempted from the draft and were able to buy the way out of it, and now they were being more equalized. Uh, this is where he's going with this sort of project. Now, these schools are interesting. To run these Jew they're Jewish schools, and to run them, he brings in this guy, Hertz Homburg. Hertz Homburg got a very bad rap in Jewish memory for many, many years thereafter as some kind of radical assimilator trying to snatch your children away from authentic Jewishness. Recent scholarship has shown that he was actually far more committed to a kind of positive modern Jewishness. Uh, he was a Moschiel, a moderate Moschiel, an enlightened Jew, uh, who, who really got a bad rap, and there, there are historiographical reasons for that, that that happened in, in our memory. Uh, but in any event, he runs these schools for a while. Eventually, several thousand are, are enrolled, uh, and that has an effect. These things do have an effect on the Jewish community to a certain extent. Uh, as I said, Joseph II dies in 1790. Uh, again, I'm giving you just a brief overview. I could go on any of these things for a long time. Uh, after he dies, his successors roll back some of the more progressive acts of Joseph II while leaving in place some of the, the, the more regressive acts. And it does begin to have an effect on Galicianer identity to a certain extent. So for example, uh, the Haskalah, the Jewish Enlightenment, which begins in Germany, spreads naturally to Galicia, to Galicia. It's right next door. It's part of a German-speaking empire. Uh, and you see a lot of leading Maskilim coming out of Galicia. These are a few of their names that are, are the more famous ones. Uh, you also, and they're being supported by an emerging elite of wealthy Jewish merchants. Uh, by the way, these two pictures are two of my uh, most interesting figures from, from 19th century Galicia. On the right, you have Josef Perl, one of the most important Maeskini of the early 19th century. He composes a brilliant satire of Hasidic literature called Megalatimirin, the Revealer of Secrets, which is a sort of fake Hasidic book that was written so well that the Hasidim themselves were buying it, not realizing that it was mocking them. Uh, one of my favorite passages it has in there is when a, um, is a story about a, a woman who says, yes, unfortunately, the evil you know, Austrian Empire forced us to send my son to a German-speaking school for nine years, but thank God he remembers nothing, uh, and things like this. Uh, yes, please. Sorry, Maskil is a father of the Haskalah, so an enlightened Jew, a member of this intellectual movement of the Jewish Enlightenment. 
So it's the same, if you hear the Hebrew, it's the same root, SKL. So Haskalah is the Jewish enlightenment. Maskil is a father. Maskilik is just a made-up word in English to make an adjective out of it. Yeah, thank you for asking that. Uh, the man on the left is Abraham Cohen, who is the, one of the first so-called uh, reformed, but he wasn't really reformed the way you're thinking of it, rabbis, who's brought into then called Lemberg, today Lviv, the capital of Galicia. Uh, it was a rather spectacular case. He was poisoned. Uh, he and one of his children died from it, actually. He was murdered uh, by uh, sort of fanatic anti-modern forces in the city. It was, it was a spectacular case, very tragic case. Uh, and the truth was, he wasn't even, he, he, was, he was what we would call sort of today neo-Orthodox or some kind of a sort of modern Orthodox. I'll explain those terms later. Actually, I'll explain those terms more tonight if you come to the, um, to the second lecture. But that, that's who that is on the, uh, on the left-hand side. So Germanization takes some hold of, uh, among the, the masses. You know, people do take German-sounding last names and, uh, you know, knowledge of German language spreads to a certain extent. It's, after all, Yiddish is a Germanic language although the Galician Yiddish is more distant from German than other forms of Yiddish. Um, but on the other hand, uh, Hasidism is incredibly deeply rooted in Galicia, and that tends to resist these efforts. Uh, Hasidism, uh, the, the Galician Hasidic leaders uh, were extremely concerned about acculturation in that sense, and that would be a block to a certain extent. Again, I'm giving you just a sort of a general overview, but these things uh, didn't take root among the masses as deeply as perhaps uh, the Maskilim would have hoped. Uh, and Austrian bureaucrats themselves didn't really push it that hard. They weren't really concerned. Recent scholarship by, by people like Rachel Manneken have shown that the Austrians were not, you know, suppressing Hasidism. They weren't trying to assimilate the Jews. That just wasn't their attitude. And, and so they were not allies of the Maskilim, the way the Maskilim thought so. These things were being blocked in certain ways. I mean, after all, how are you going to integrate in Galicia exactly? What does that mean? Right, so if you're in Berlin in mid-1800s, and you're an up-and-coming Jew, you're entering the middle class, you know what it means to kind of acculturate, integrate. It means to speak German. There's this German middle class, German non-Jewish middle class you want to enter. Uh, you need to do you need a certain education and identity, a hyphenated identity, and so on. That's much more difficult in Eastern Europe, including Galicia, where there really isn't a vibrant middle class uh, to enter. You, the Jews constitute the bulk of the middle class. So the whole project is a little bit different in Eastern Europe, including in Galicia. In the mid-1800s, there was a move towards emancipation, the equalization of Jewish rights with non-Jews. Now, emancipation uh, is uh, only possible in a world in which everyone's emancipated, meaning the end of feudalism, right? To talk about emancipation in a world of serfs doesn't make much sense. Uh, you have to have first the end of feudalism, and then you can talk about Jewish emancipation. There is, I'm not going to go through the whole history. There was a series of pressures against the centralized government, uh, led not principally by Jews, although Jews join along in certain moments, but by other national movements that are beginning to take hold. Uh, this is an early example. This is a picture of the revolt of Poles in Krakow in 1846. I, I mentioned this particular example because it really highlights the point I was making earlier about identity. In 1846, a Polish gentry in Krakow, which is, after all, the you know, city of the old Polish state that's now under Austrian, it was then independent, but basically under Austrian rule, uh, and they said, my Polish brothers and sisters, the gentry came to the Polish-speaking serfs, the time of our you know, redemption's arrived, blah, 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 let's, let's rise up and overthrow the Austrians, and the serfs, the Polish-speaking serfs rose up, and slaughtered the Polish gentry and said to the Austrians, we're with you, You're, you know, we're, we're on your side, which is a very strange thing to do. Why would they kill their own Polish brothers? And the answer, of course, is they didn't view them as their Polish brothers. They didn't have yet that kind of Polish national identity. These things are just getting going now during the 1840s and 1850s and beyond. So in 46, there's a revolt. In 48, when there's revolutions across Europe, that hap that's happening in the Austrian Empire as well. Other groups start developing national consciousness. Other groups have intelligentsias that start thinking of themselves as a, as a nation, pushing for national rights, trying to get other uh, members of their ethnic group to think of themselves that way, not the Jews. The Jews do get politicized to a certain extent, even traditional Jews, what you'd call Orthodox Jews, I wouldn't use that term, but they're pushing for natural rights, individual rights. They're not thinking of themselves as being a nation. That won't come for another couple generations. They're pushing for natural rights. Uh, an important push, an important act of politicization 
but not the same way as some of the other groups around them. They finally achieve emancipation only when the whole empire is restructured in 1867. It's split to the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. Hungary gets basically independence in, in most areas, and Aust the Austrian half is the lighter gray. You can see it around the edges of the empire. That's the Austrian half. And to buy off the Polish nobility, who also wanted the deal the Hungarians got, the Austrian crown said, tell you what, we're not going to get that kind of a deal, but we're going to give you home rule in Galicia. You're going to control Galicia. So beginning right away from 1867, Galicia starts to Polonize. Cities start, Lemberg becomes Lvov. Um, street names change. Opera house names change. Schools, universities start using Polish language. Galicia starts to Polonize in a very rapid way, including the so-called Ukrainian part. It all begins to Polonize. That was the deal. And as part of that deal as well, there was total emancipation for the Jews. From 1867, there are no Jewish disabilities. Jews have no disability. They can live, they can move anywhere in the empire they want. They can work where they want. Uh, they can vote if, they achieve, if they're men and if they have the requisite income, et cetera, et cetera. That is, Jews are emancipated. So you have this weird situation where Jews are still Eastern European, heavily Hasidic, Yiddish-speaking, very poor. Uh, they're a middle class where there is no you know, non strong non-Jewish middle class, all of the hallmarks of Eastern Europe, but they're totally emancipated. They have rights that we associate with Western Europe. So it's a very unusual population that, that I don't think actually gets enough uh, interest, enough credit, enough research done on it. One aspect of, 67, of, that, of that new uh, rules in 67 that I want to talk about for just a second is this little tidbit, Article 19 of the new Constitution. I won't read the whole thing, but the gist of it is in order to keep the national movements from trying to rise up and overthrow the crown, the new constitution says, tell you what, we're going to give all the nationalities national minority rights. You have the right to have a school in your own language, to use your language in court proceedings, and so on and, and so on. All the nationalities, and that way you don't need to rise up and have a state or overthrow or anything like that, right? It was to buy them off. That was the idea. Uh, there were uh, a list of accepted nationalities. Jews were not a nationality. First of all, they themselves didn't think they were, but the state didn't because nationality was determined based on language. Umgangssprache, the language you use when you go around. And Jews don't have a language because Yiddish, they thought, isn't a language. Yiddish is a gutter dialect of German. It's not a real language. Ergo, Jews are not a nation. So that was the way it was set up. But it certainly gave an impetus to national movements in general, because now they're striving, they have something at stake. And when we get a, in a generation, in our case, about 12 minutes, uh, to Zionism, you can imagine they're gonna, what they're going to do with this stuff, right? They're going to really have a field day with this. All right, let's talk about the second. And now we get into the background. Let's talk about the second half. What's happening now that we have a thick Galicianer place? As you know, Galicianers. What's going on during these, these, the second half of the age of Galicia in this brief talk, in these, the few minutes that I, that I have? And these are some of my favorite Galicianer faces. I love these people, and I love these faces, and I have hundreds and thousands more pictures besides them. But I want to point out one thing. When we think of Galicianers, I think most people will imagine the guy on the right, maybe the Hasidim on the left, right? But they don't think of the guy on the upper left. That's Emil Bick, who is a professional in an upper-middle-class member of, Gal of Galician society, of, of Lemberg society. Uh, they don't think of middle class or upper middle class Jews who are educated and professionals. That's part of, Galicia, of Galicianer life too. They think only of the guy on the right, who's a wonderful face, and I hope he lived a long life. Uh, but it's not quite the same, you know, that's, that's the image that we have. And I'll come back to that as we go through. Uh, yeah, I mean, th there are many. Uh, but Roman Vishnik, of course, is, not that he wasn't in Galicia, but that was much, much later, obviously. Much, much later, obviously, yeah. Okay, so let's talk first about the economic profile of Galician, of, of the Galicianers. Um, as I mentioned earlier, there's a high degree of congruence between nationality and class and socioeconomic position. So in Galicia, especially in Eastern Galicia, uh, Jews might be, I'm sorry, Poles might constitute the sort of gentry. Uh, there'll be Polish peasants more in the West. Uh, you have Ukrainians overwhelmingly, and again, I say Ukrainians with air quotes around it, you know, 
not quite Ukrainian identity yet, but future Ukrainians, uh, mostly in East Galicia as peasants, although a, thr a thin stratum of Ukrainian intelligentsia, mostly priests as well. And then you have the Jews. Jews are diverse, but overwhelmingly serving the sort of intermediary, middle-class role between lord and serfs, taking a disproportionate role in the, in the growing money economy, which was quite marginal to the 1860s, uh, the serfs are emancipated along with the Jews uh, with that restructuring, and the money economy becomes much more important. Uh, more than two-thirds of Galician Jews, uh, Galicianers, are involved in trade, handicraft, and small industry. Uh, there are certain branches of, of production that are almost entirely in Jewish hands, flour mills, small oil refineries, I'll come back to in a bit, sawmills, tanneries, brickyards, soda water factories, prayer shawl factories, talus factories, but and I'll talk about one in particular later on, but also alcohol. It's really hard to overestimate the importance, the extent to which Jews had a monopoly in alcohol production and sale and transport. It was actually run by the Polish nobility. They had the exclusive rights to produce, transport, and sell alcohol, but they leased that right exclusively to Jews. Jewish innkeepers uh, were ubiquitous in Eastern Europe in general, and Galicia in particular, and they were exclusively Jewish throughout the 19th century. Uh, they were really, they were really all, all Jewish. That's important for a whole host of reasons, not the least of which is cultural. Because when you have, a, you say, a Ukrainian temperance movement, because you, alcoholism was so rampant. So if you have a Ukrainian national temperance movement, right, to, to sort of defeat alcoholism and all the things that go along with it, it's hard to imagine that not having an anti-Semitic piece to it, right? Because the Jews are the face of alcohol. Even if the money flows up to the nobility, the Jews are the face of alcohol. So that this thing has a cultural importance. And one other aspect I want to mention is oil production. Oil was discovered in Galicia in the late 19th century, especially a region around Drohobych and Borosov. Uh, actually, for a few years, it became the third largest producers of oil in the world after the United States and Russia. Uh, for a few years, it was a very, very important source of oil. And Jews were highly involved in that industry, both as workers and as the balabas, as the, as the owners. And I have a picture of both right here. That's Jakob Forderstein in the bottom left corner, who's one of the owners, one of the wealthiest men, uh, Jews in Galicia. And some of the workers, uh, it weren't only Jews. There were, of course, Ukrainians and Poles also working those oil fields. But Jews in particular were involved, and Jews were highly involved also as the owners of these, of, these, uh, of these places. And that has its own very, very interesting history. In general, Jews uh, who really had no real competition in Ukrainians or Poles until the end of the century, Jews were operating very small level, uh, weak, sort of more lower middle class type of operations. And in any event, uh, despite the emancipation, despite this incredible rights they had, their impoverishment was far, far worse. Uh, very famously, someone once calculated that in Galicia, at a time that the population was about 10 million, 55,000 people were starving to death uh, every single year. Not, just, not Jews, but of the population as a whole. It was incredibly impoverished. Um, and this was made worse for the Jews every decade that passed by increasing degrees of Polish and Ukrainian anti-Jewish discrimination. And this is a touchy subject. On the one hand, there's an anti-Semitic element to it. On the other hand, there's a nationalist element to it of trying to get Jews and, and to get Poles and Ukrainians involved in this new economy. So a Ukrainian co-op movement, for example, uh, on the one hand, that seems very good and national and helping the Ukrainians you know, save money and so on, but it had an explicitly anti-Semitic aspect to it, right? It was specifically designed to cut out Jews, specifically Jews, uh, from, from the market in, in this sense. Uh, to have a Sunday rest law uh, is very hard for Jews because they're mostly traditional and aren't gonna work on Saturdays. Uh, this sort, of, this sort of thing is happening. And as time goes on, uh, anti-Semitism does worsen in Galicia. In the 1890s, the pogroms, which had until then largely evaded Galicia, in 1898, a whole series of them explodes across Western Galicia, the Polish part of Galicia. In 1898, a new book just came out about that, by the way, which is fantastic. I can't recommend it enough. It's called The Plunder, and I cannot recommend it enough. It's absolutely fantastic, The Plunder. Uh, Daniel Nowski. He was a great scholar of, of Austrian history in general. Uh, actually, the editor of the Austrian History Yearbook, which is uh, uh, Unowski, U-N-O-W-S-K-Y. And it's called The Plunder. And it's superb. And it talks about 
the, 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 the Galician pogroms, which was really during the pre-World War I period, the only mass explosion of anti-Jewish violence in Galicia, which is impressive considering these tensions, considering the economic stress, uh, considering what's happening in Russia earlier and later. It's quite impressive that this is it. There are other attacks, but sometimes it's hard to know, was it anti-Semitic or is it this is a rough sort of uh, frontier place and violence is part of, that, part of that world? Usually, if you look through the police files, which I have at length, they, call, they don't call them uh, anti-Semitic uh, 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 pogroms, usually. The word is excesses. Like, I always laughed at that. I, I know it's a normal German word for what they were doing, but it's sort of like, you know, some violence is okay, but that was really going too far. I, that was, you know, I always thought of that when I thought, saw that word in the, in the files. Um, but on the, in 98, there was quite, quite an explosion. In general, Catholic rhetoric, and I'm thinking now of the Poles, not the Ukrainians, Catholic rhetoric was ramping up against the Jews during the last years of Galicia before World War I. Now, what's interesting about that is that in Jewish memory, it's actually the Ukrainians uh, who are the villains. They're still living in 1648 with Chemelnitsky and all that kind of stuff, right? In their mind, very often, the Ukrainians are the villains, and Poles are the natural allies. It's going to take something of an act of modernization by Jews in Galicia to change that paradigm. I don't have time to discuss it right now, but uh, at the end of Galicia, 1907, 1908, 1909, the Zionists actually make a very tight alliance with the Ukrainians for electoral, uh, for in the elections of, uh, of the, to parliament. They did it once earlier, actually, in seven, 1873. But progressive Jews, and Zionists were progressive Jews, start thinking about changing that paradigm, thinking maybe the other oppressed group of Galicia should be our allies. But it was an uphill struggle. Because in the Galicianer mind, I think hell in the Jewish mind, especially after the 20th century, after the Ukrainian pogroms of world, you know, after World War I and the Holocaust, I think this ingrained idea of Ukrainians as anti-Semites is hard to overcome. But in that time, in many ways, Jews and Ukrainians had an alliance. And actually, I've done quite a bit of work on that alliance. And in many ways, the Ukrainians were better, the Ukrainian nationalists were better allies to the Zionists than the Zionists were to the Ukrainian nationalists. It's a very interesting history. Uh, that I don't have time to go into right now. Uh, one of the results of all of this is, is, that, uh, is emigration. Uh, Jews are pouring out of Galicia during the, the last few decades of, of Galician history um, at far greater numbers than, than non-Jews. So, for example, uh, between 1881, the beginning of the mass migration of Jews to, uh, to America and elsewhere, and 1910, 236,000-plus Jews left the province. That was about almost a third of all emigrants from Galicia, but recall there were only about 11% of the population. So three times their, their numbers left. And that's because of the impoverishment. And by the way, a higher number, a percentage of Jews left Galicia than Russia. Because in general, what moved people from Eastern Europe wasn't just violence, but it was also economic want. Uh, and that was very, very uh, much the case in, in Galicia. Uh, one last point I want to make, though, again, uh, is that there is terrible impoverishment, and things are getting worse. But at the same time, there's also a rise of a new professional class of Jews. It's also part of the, the picture of Glitzianers. Uh, so if you look at these people, for example, they're making it. Um, uh, that's uh, Samuel Horowitz, for example, on the left-hand side. Just to give you some numbers, um, in 1887, Jews were 31% of all lawyers in Galicia in 1887. In 1897, 48.3%. In 1910, 58%. Right uh, Now, again, this is a minority of the Jews, but a significant number of people and a huge bite out of the professional class as a whole. Jews also, by the end of the period, by the end of Galicia and World War I, owned 16% of private land. They were owning land and developing it, right? So, uh, yes, Jews were uh, largely quite poor and getting poorer, but not, that's not the whole story. There's more to the story than just that. Oh, and I have to show you this. So where were the Jews? I showed you that picture of Jakob Feuerstein, the wealthy oil magnate, and others like him in Drohobich. Where would they pray? Of course, they had their grandiose synagogues. This is the grandiose synagogue in Drohobich. Uh, on the right is how it looked until quite recently. And I know you're thinking that's terrible, it's so sad, but look at it now. It just got refurbished. I couldn't resist showing you. And if you go to Galicia, do not miss the Drohobich, uh, the Grand Synagogue in Drohobich. And it's just as magnificent on the inside. I was there at the, uh, at the christening, forgive me, at the, <laughs> at the opening. It's in Ukraine. Yes, it's today in Ukraine. Galicia today is mostly in Ukraine. Uh, the western part that was then 
Western Galicia, which is around Krakow and that area is in Poland. Most of Galicia is in Ukraine. Uh, Galicia is today not uh, multi-ethnic any, anymore. The Jews were absolutely decimated during the Holocaust. There are virtually no Jews in Galicia whatsoever. Those who are there are basically Jews who came back after the war from Russia, or came from after the war from Russia. Uh, and the Poles were uh, mostly pushed out after the reshuffling of the populations after World War II. So today it is, it is unif and Galicia, you know, the Ukrainian part is, is, is Ukrainian. Uh, if you find some old Ukrainians, they'll still, you can get around in Polish, uh, but that's a dying, dying breed. Uh, for sure. Uh, anyway, this is the Indorovich, uh, and I'll show you one other image in a second about th there is some refurbishment going on in Galicia. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. Religious life, and I know I'm, I'm watching the time very carefully. Uh, Galician Jews remained highly religiously traditional, mostly Hasidic up to World War I, even into the interwar period. The power of the Hasidic leaders was considerable. Uh, the cherem, the, the excommunication of one of these leaders, meant something. Uh, some of the most important early Hasidic leaders, like Elimelech of Lezhensk, one of the founders of the Hasidic movement, was, fr was, a, was from Galicia in that sense. Before Galicia was Galicia, but still. Uh, but many, the Bells dynasty founded by Shalom Rokeach, Chaim Halbestam, who uh, founded in Nova Sanz, uh, his, his dynasty. Uh, you have also uh, Sadegor in, in neighboring Bukovina, which comes from Ruzhin. The Ruzhina Rebbe, Israel of Ruzhin, comes from Russia to Bukovina, which is basically Galicia. Uh, and he has a number of sons who all found dynasties in Brody, in Husatin, Chortkov, Riminov, and many, many, many others. Uh, by the second half of the 19th century, maybe six, and certainly five, maybe six out of seven Jews were Hasidic. So incredibly thick Hasidic area. Uh, but not only. This is one of, one of the things that the Galician Hasidic leaders develop is this sort of regal ways, as it was called by one scholar, this sort of grandiose scheme of living in a palace. And the theology behind that was that all material goods uh, have sparks of godliness that have to be used for holy purpose and thereby elevated and returned to their source. And who better than the Hasidic leader to have the right kavana, to have the right intention, to use the wealth to elevate the divine spark? So the encouragement was all the Hasidim to you know, give their money to the leader who will then use it for a holy purpose and elevate it. And so you have these palaces being built by these Hasidic leaders. This is one of them here in Sadagor. Uh, this one is, is outside of, uh, is in Bukovina, in Chernovitz, outside Chernovitz. Uh, and this also is being completely re-established. If you look in the upper right-hand corner, you can see Grusa uh, Bukovina from the palace of the Wunderabai from Sadagor, Israel Rujin. His grave is still there. And the bottom left, you see it's in the middle of renovations. And those renovations are complete today, and it's stunning. And I encourage you to visit if you do go there. Sorry? Who pay for them is the current, the, the current Hasidim of Rujin, uh, who have, who have uh, done okay. Uh, and they're buying up apartments all around. Right across the courtyard from there are these apartments. They're buying them up for, as they say, a few groschen. I mean, very cheap. And they're using it. They're coming back. And they're using it for vacations or for studying and so on. They're redeveloping that. But they're not living there. No one is far. I mean, last I heard, they're not living there year-round, no. There are Jews there, but not these Jews. They, they, these are from the old, from, you know, old Soviet Jews. Um, I just have to say, by the way, in the bottom left corner, that's me. Uh, when I was there, and I tried to position myself exactly like the famous postcard that everyone you can find on, on Google. He had a cane. I was holding a Starbucks, uh, but, you know, <laughs> more or less it's parallel. I was very proud of that picture, by the way. And these are great questions, incidentally. Um, so the, uh, in Austrian Empire, Jews are legally part of a community. It's called the Israelitis Kultusgemeinde, or the IKG. By the way, in Austria today, there still is an IKG. Jews are still members of a Jewish community. Uh, but back then, for sure, that was the case. Um, it was by law. Uh, and, you know, for example, uh, out of, you know, public budgets, uh, teachers of the Mosaic religion had permanent jobs in public schools, for, for example. Um, most children, uh, boys especially, were still going to haters. Interesting phenomenon, though. There was a law that all Jews had to go to the public schools. Uh, many of the religious parents didn't like this. Uh, how do you get around that rule? So here's how you get around that rule. Uh, there weren't enough seats for everybody. That was just a fact of life. It was a poor province. So what's the solution? If you want to protect your, what's important to you, send the girls. Uh, 
Send the girls to the public schools. Fill up the seats. There won't be room for the boys. The boys are free to go to the cheder and whatnot. Uh, and this was the policy for many, many years. That had a number of consequences. The, Jew the Jewish girls started getting a more worldly education than the boys did, and that became an issue over time. If you've ever heard of the Beis Yaakov school system, uh, founded by Sir Schneer in Krakow, that's in Galicia. It's not a coincidence that the first major attempt at girls' orthodox you know, girls' education within the Orthodox world came out of Galicia. There's a reason for that. There's this tradition of Galicia that she was responding to, that girls were getting this education because there was no system for them, and they were actually deliberately being sent to these schools for that reason. It's a weird phenomenon. Again, Rachel Menneken, who I mentioned earlier, has written a lot about this, and now others have as well. Uh, in 1830, 408 Jewish children attended public schools in Galicia, Public, again, is what that means. I won't get into right now. In 1900, there were 110,269. On top of those kids, you also have the Baron Hirsch schools. Have any of you ever heard of Baron Hirsch? He has a, made a famous community in Memphis, Tennessee, and others. He was a huge philanthropist, and he set up these schools across Galicia to, that would give Jews free modern educations to help them along in life, including Polish language and mathematics and science, trades, especially trades. And these schools had an impact. Uh, the, this had, Jews in Galicia became, for example, far more Polonized than any other part of, of, of pre-partition Poland. Um, they also, I'll just skip to the conclusion for a minute and say, in the 20th century, when you have the rise of the first, you know, these modern Jewish historians, like Ringelblum, you might have heard of, and others, they're all Galicianers. All of them. What? I don't get it. I thought the Galicianers were these primitive, ignorant, whatever. No, that's part of the mythology. That mythology, by the way, was created by another great Galicianer expat named Carl Mills Fransos, who had these, wrote these famous books about what he called half Asia, this backwards, crazy place of crazy people in Galicia. And that image stuck because modern Germanizing Jews could say, oh, I'm different than those primitives around me, right? And that image stuck over time, even though it really isn't fair whatsoever. Um, but anyway, so that's, that's in terms of, of education. Uh, and I'll talk about that maybe at the, during Q&A at the end. And finally, I have just really almost no time left, but I need at least 15 minutes. So, Star, you're stuck with me. Um, I, I, do I have uh, permission of the, uh, of the bell bus? So um, to talk a little bit about political cultural options and identities. This is a time that identities and politics are shifting rapidly. They're extremely fluid. People are trying to figure out in this new changing world, what does it mean to be a Jew? And you have, not just in Galicia, all, all over, but in Galicia is a particularly rich source of these new movements because of that a huge Jewish population, culturally, uh, you know, Yiddish language and educated and so on, and free, emancipated. They have freedom of the press, for the most part, freedom of assembly, and so on and so on. And it's not just the Jews, by the way. Also, Ukrainian and Polish nationalism is basically products of Galicia in many ways, uh, especially Ukrainian. So what are some of these... Uh, you know, ways that Jews exp explore being Jewish and what are the organizations behind them. The first one are the people who call themselves assimilationists. They use that term. It doesn't mean what you think it means. It doesn't mean they wanted to stop being Jewish and just mix in with everybody else. It's really much more what you would call acculturationist or integrationist. These are Jews who said, uh, we are part of this surrounding society. Early on, they had a German identity, over time, that became kind of obsolete in Galicia because of the Polonization, and the next generation said, no, actually, we're Polish. A hyphenated Western identity, the same as everyone in this room is probably an American Jew or Jewish American, some kind of hyphenated identity. That's what they wanted as well. They set up an early modern political organization called Shomer Yisrael. Later is another one called Agudas Achim, uh, which has a more openly pro-Polish identity. And they have their own newspaper, Oichizna. Oichizna means uh, fatherland. Fatherland and this newspaper advocating assimilation had a Hebrew language supplement. Had a he because that was the ideology. We're going to be speaking Pol for the Bogutus Achim. We're going to speak Polish. We're going to be Polish identified Jews, proud Polish Jews, uh, and that was part of the idea behind this movement. It wasn't really assimilationist the way we use that term today, and that's proofs in the pudding there. 
a second form of modern Jewishness that is modern and new and different and not like what came before is orthodoxy, political orthodoxy. Orthodoxy, as I'll explain more tonight, does not mean the continuation of pre-modern Judaism or Jewishness. It is also a way of constructing and re, you know, thinking what it means to be a Jew in the modern world, in this unprecedented world. Political orthodoxy says we want to use the tools of modernity to advocate for this perspective of Judaism that we think is traditional, right? In other words, for example, we're concerned about the newspapers. So one approach is to say, don't read newspapers. Don't read them. It's bad. But the other approach is to say, we'll make our own newspapers. And they called it themselves and the paper, which means defenders of the faith. Their opponents would, would drop, because Jews are so clever, would drop the chet, the ches, and they would call them which means uh, destroyers or, or damagers of the faith. That, was, that, was, that went for clever back then. Um, but this had an impact, and there was an ironic aspect to it. So here's a, a memory. I won't read the whole thing because time is short of the... Uh, I'll put it online later. I think there's a way to do it. But uh, the editor of the pa- one of the earliest editors of the paper said, you know, there was this big debate between two Hasidic courts, Bells and Sadagur. What do we do in modernity? Uh, in general, um, Sadagur was more willing, they, they dressed more fashionably and so on, but they were dead set against the newspaper, dead set against it. And Bells said, no, no, no. You got to... You know, they're going to read papers, so better give them a kosher paper, right? That was the idea. And then he writes in his memoir, who was correct? And here I have to, I have to read. I was editor of the Kol Dot for several years. I don't want to spit in the well from which I drank, which is a great expression, by the way, but I must speak my mind. The historian writing about the Jews in Galicia will have to give credit for the modern cultural development of today's Galicianers to the Belzer Rebbe and Machsike Dot. For the truth is, not Joseph Pearl, not Nachman Krachmal, another famous Moskiel, succeeded in raising the intellectual level of Jewish youth in Galicia as much as did this Hasidic Hebrew paper. Without intending it, not even aware of what it was accomplishing, this newspaper made fertile the soil on which Hebrew schools, the modern Hebrew language, and Zionism flourished. The Sadagera Rebbe was right. This fanatic Hasidic paper, which dared not mention a word about the Zionist Congress, stirred Hasidic youth from their lethargy and propelled them out of the prayer houses, first into the tents of the Maskilim and eventually into the arms of the Zionists. And that was the irony. So in the end, maybe Sadagor had something, they were right. So orthodoxy is another way of being Jewish. It's, it's a self-assertive, voluntaristic identity uh, in this world in which you could do whatever you, increasingly do whatever you wanted using the tools of modernity to defend this new world. I, again, I wish I had more time to talk about orthodoxy. It's fascinating. I want to say two things about orthodoxy, though. Number one is that it's born in Galicia with Maxike Adas, not the more famous group, Agudis Yisrael, which comes 50 years later, right? And number two, it precedes the Zionists. It precedes the socialists. They came first. They came first. The assimilationists and the orthodox were the first forms of modern Jewish politics. This is the thesis of Rachel Manikin's most recent book, and she's quite right. Third way, socialism. Also, you, th- you heard of the Bund probably in Russia. There was also Jewish socialism thriving in Galicia. They had a very early action before the Bund. In 1892, there was a huge strike in the city of Kolomea at the Talis factory. The Talis factory, which was, which was a big deal. In Vienna, the Austrian Socialist Party took note. Look at these Jews. They're striking against a Jew, their Jewish owner from the same Hasidic court. They took an oath on the Torah not to uh, break ranks, not to be a scab, not to cross the picket line. That was hugely significant for the socialist movement uh, in general. The, the, the local Zionist was being sort of uh, attacked at the time, saying, how could you let this happen? He said, don't worry, don't worry. They're not socialists, they're hungry. Don't worry. Let them politicize. Let them learn about modern politics and the socialist movement. We'll get them eventually. Don't worry about it. And he was right to a certain extent, but that was, that was his line at the time. But that was one, another, a third form of sort of political, cultural approach, identity, and so on in Galicia. And the last one, of course, is Jewish nationalism. Uh, this is the one I've actually written the most about. 
Uh, and ironically, it's 1.47, so my time is almost out, so I can't go into it very much at all, except to say you should read my book. Uh, but I will say just a couple things uh, about it. Um, first of all, uh, this is a new idea. What the Zionists were trying to do, like every other nationalist movement, is to convince the Jews, you're a nation. You're a nation. And they were screaming this in newspapers and rallies, left and right, year after year after year. And the fact that they're screaming it so much tells us, of course, that it wasn't working. Now, you know it did work eventually, but it took a lot of time. At the same time, Polish and Ukrainian nationalists were doing the same thing, screaming at the Jews, you're an, you, you know, sorry, screaming at their own people, you're Ukrainian, you're a Pole, you're, you know, it took time for these ideas to sink in. And Jews are flipping in and out of these parties. You have one Jew, you know, and, and the alliances are bizarre. The, I mean, and on the one hand, you have a Zionist publication in Polish that is saying Hebrew is our language, which we don't speak. And you have an Orthodox publication in Hebrew saying we're Poles and should ally with the Polish nobility, right? Galician politics, that's how, that's how it goes. And there's even more ironies than that. But I want to just end, because I really am out of time, and I wish I could talk more about this, uh, but in terms of Jewish nationalism, to give you a taste, a little bit, of what was going on at the time, one of the, uh, my favorite parts of this story of Jewish nationalism is the press, is the Yiddish press, is the attempt to build a nation just by talking about it, sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy, telling people in Yiddish, you can tell we're a nation because we have this Yiddish paper, which is proof that we're a language, and if we're a language, we're, we're, ergo, we're a nation. And they would try to tap into any, in any way they could to local people. So I'll give you one example. And they would sort of present themselves as being more authentically Jewish, right? Even though themselves weren't even uh, religious. So here's one example of one of these Yiddish papers. And I have, of course, countless others. It's always been a puzzle to me, the paper wrote, why the three, a medical doctor, a lawyer, and a rabbi, are all given the title doctor. Only when I look at the contemporary educated rabbi are all three questions answered for me. The first one knows the disease, the other makes the disease, and the third one is the disease. Only in the meantime, until the fresh reform rabbis are ready, I'm yet still a bit of a human being. I can still come to the rabbi with my friends. We drink a bit of wine. We say l'chaim. We hear words of Torah, although being Galicia, I'm sure it was Tyra. Uh, but anyway, we hear these words. We celebrate with him and he with us. It doesn't look to me whether I'm dirty or have a torn kaftan. I'm a chassid. I may go as I please. When I come to the rabbi to ask a question, he answers me as I understand in a simple Yiddish. How bitter and dark it will be for me that I will have to come to the doctor rabbi, the doctor rabbi, the educated modern orthodox rabbi, who he calls reform. Knock on the door, my hat under my arm. Maybe I will even have to give him a kiss on the hand. New and how exactly will I express myself in Polish? Is that a geber nekap chelevaf and kigel or spitz milk after yoke? The questions they might ask a rabbi, right? Uh, I, I don't even know where to begin. Will he possibly understand Yiddish? I'm highly doubtful. And these papers would try to connect to regular people and say, we're, we're with you. And then they had these articles saying, and that's why we're for Yiddish and Yiddish nationalism and the Yiddish nation. And the joy is in Yiddish. The word Yiddish for the language and for the nation is the same word. And that works very, very well. Uh, they wouldn't use the word nation, but they would rather use the word folk. Uh, or something like, or um, right? Something that people would, would connect with. And then finally, uh, and the, these last quotes I'll give you, comes the election of a man named Yosef Blach, who is an, or a rabbi, a modern rabbi, but a rabbi, who promised to represent Jews and not to ally himself with the Poles. And these Jewish nationalists seize the opportunity to say, this is what it means to be a good Jew, to be a national Jew, means to support this. We talk about these advertisements in, in Israel of Brooklyn today, like there's something new, and I laugh at it because it goes back so far to the 19th century to Galicia. So for example, here's one such advertisement. It's a holy obligation, according to the law, halacha, according to the halacha, that all rabbis and sages of Galicia stand by the wise Herr Dr. Blach and preach in public in every city that every person who fears God in his heart should choose only the rabbi Dr. Blach, and every person who opposes him is sinning against God and man, because God has sent him for our sustenance. He is an angel sent to his nation, and he is putting his life in danger to wage God's war against those who rise up against us. Yes, sir, you have a question. I'm confused about what's the point of view of this Dr. Bloch and yeah, the Yiddish yes. press there. What is the name? 
Dr. Bloch was speaking about a Jewish nation. He actually wasn't a nationalist. He hated Zion. He, didn't, he was opposed to Zionism, but he talked about a Jewish stamm, Jewish tribe, a Jewish group in this way. And so the, the early Zionists in their press tried to seize on that as a way of activating the people on their behalf. Um, and there's, there's, I mean, many other examples I could give you, but they try to connect it with Judaism, with the Torah, with halacha, with these sorts of language to appeal to people. And again, this is sort of a segue to my lecture tonight when I speak about modern denominations, that all modern denominations, including Zionism, try to do that. They try to connect to something that rings authentic with the people listening, with the masses. And this is what they try, and they're successful. They're successful. By World War I, most Jews in Galicia have some kind of a national identity, which is a chiddush, it's a new thing. They have some kind of a sense that Jews constitute a nation akin to Poles or Ukrainians. I know in this day and age with Israel and so on, that seems self-evident, but it wasn't self-evident at all. Uh, it wasn't self-evident because it wasn't true. It's, it's a self-fulfilling pro Nationhood is a sort of, um, it's a perspective on the world, not a thing of the world. It's an epistemology. It's a way of organizing people, right? So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It became a nation because they willed it. And that was a product of these intellectuals and of this, of, this, of this stream of Jewish thought. But the other ones didn't go away. Orthodoxy, of course, remained quite vibrant. And the integrationists didn't go away. Uh, and the socialists didn't go away. All of those streams were there. I wish I had more time to read some of these other, uh, other samples. I'd be happy to, and they're also all in my book. Uh, so not all of them, but many of them are in my book, whatever, that, whatever the, um, the publisher <laughs> allowed, allowed me to put in. Uh, unfortunately not, uh, but they are online on Amazon by now, and, it, and uh, the paperback is out, so it should be, I hope, reasonably. Uh, it's a ridiculous title. Uh, Diaspora Nationalism and Jewish Identity in Habsburg, Galicia. Ridiculous, I know. If you type Shane's Galicia, it will come up. It will come up. And by the way, I also have a series of lectures on YouTube that will also come up if you YouTube me. Uh, so if you, want, if you really want Galicia and you have 10 hours to spare, uh, YouTube is your, is your ticket. YouTube is your ticket. Um, let me just end with one note, because I see it's 154 and, and the time is, is quite short. Uh, I made a joke at the beginning of, of the hour uh, you know, about being a Galician, there's a famous joke that somebody asked a four-year-old was Bistu, and he says, uh, you've been a Galicianer, and the guy says, oh, four years old and already Galicianer, right? And there's countless jokes like this. Uh, but the truth is, it's completely undeserved. Galicianers in the audience, be proud. Think about what comes out of Galicia. Think about how it's the bastion of early Haskalah and all the Masculine thinkers that come out of Galicia. Think about the rabbinical scholars that are coming out of Galicia. Think about the tzaddiki, meaning the Hasidic leaders developing all these new innovative ideas uh, of Jewish thought. Think about modern Jewish politics of orthodoxy, of Zionism, socialism, uh, uh, all, all these ideas of, of so-called assimilationism, vibrant ideas and their papers, path-breaking ideas. The Galicianers were, for example, highly disproportionate uh, in, the, uh, in the Zionist movement. And of course, they were pioneers in orthodoxy. Jewish theater, I couldn't even talk about yet, but Jewish theater and music, modern Jewish literature, uh, Agnon, right, from Buchach. Shai Agnon, the Nobel laureate, uh, coming out of Buchach, coming out of Galicia. This isn't a coincidence. These things, uh, the and I mentioned the historians as well. Galicia produces all these things. Uh, and if you Google it today, however, Unfortunately, what you might find instead uh, is this, which is a delicious, tasty treat uh, that the Ukrainians love called Galicia. And it's lovely and, by the way, kosher. Uh, so I've had it many times. Uh, but there is more to Galicia than Galicia. Uh, and there's a lot to see there. And un un unfortunately, as I mentioned earlier, if I could keep going in the story, we'd have to get to the Holocaust, uh, which wiped out Galician Jewry. But Galicia lives on. It lives on in the emigres. It lives on the culture that it produced, the newspapers and the music and everything else, the, the, the sfarim, uh, and the impact that it had. And if you go there, uh, the sites are crumbling in some cases, but some of them not. The cemeteries are there. And actually, I think you'll find, in many ways, it hasn't changed in 100 years. In other words, uh, there are a couple exceptions, like Stanislavov, uh, not called Ivano-Farkovsk, but... Um, in the most part, the kind of Soviet sprawl you might imagine in your head doesn't exist much in Galicia. It's mostly almost like it was 100 years ago, that you still see the wide open countryside and the mountains and the beauty and, and, and the villages and so on. It's quite beautiful and uh, sad, 
but moving. And I would encourage everyone to make a trip. If, if you're interested, I can actually even make a connection for you with a tour guide and whatever you need. Uh, it's well worth, well worth the trip, uh, to, if, especially if you are a Glitziana yourself. And you said you've been there. Are you I'm going again this July. I couldn't ask for a better ringing endorsement than that. Uh, and I think we'll take a few minutes of questions. Yeah, we have. Am I still online with the questions as well? So I'll repeat the questions. You got it. So are there any questions? We're a small group. I'm happy to answer them. I have a question. When uh, there was the mass uh, emigration to the uh, to the U.S., mm -hmm. what? How many? Or what was the emigration to Palestine at that time? Because my family, lots of went. One side went to the U.S. The rest went to Palestine. So uh, you probably know that in Eastern Europe in general, most Jews who emigrated did not go to Palestine. The vast majority came to the United States. Actually, Galicianers, Ukrainians and Jews, had a preference for Canada disproportionately, uh, especially Ukrainians. Uh, but there were some who went to Palestine, and like with from Russia, a small, a small percentage. But Zionism was, was vibrant, and there were a number of Zionists who did go to Palestine eventually. What you have to keep in mind about Zionism, though, hence the, the weird title of my book, um, is that it was mostly a diaspora nationalist movement, meaning to say Zionism's goals were, as everywhere, Jewish national consciousness, know you're a Jew as your nationality, right? But then in terms of political goal, it wasn't to move to Palestine, or certainly wasn't to make a state, which comes much later. It was diaspora national rights. Because remember, in the Habsburg Empire, there's that Article 19. Nationalities get national rights. They get to have schools in their language. They get to have all these you know, proportional budgets and all these sorts of things. All they had to do was convince Austria to recognize the Jews, which required convincing the Jews to push Austria to do something about that. So their politics was far more diaspora-oriented than anywhere else uh, than Russia, for example. There was also diaspora orientation in Russia, a famous conference in, in Helsingfors, uh, but not like in Galicia. The, st the stakes were so high. So in 1907, when Parliament in Austria had its first uh, universal manhood suffrage, one man, one, literally one man, one vote, right? No more castes, no more the wealthy get more say, and so on. The Zionists ran candidates in 20 districts and won in four. They actually had their first Zionist club. The first Jewish national party uh, was in Galicia, and from, from Galicia to Vienna in 1907. Uh, it lasted for four years. So that even people who are Zionist-oriented might not necessarily have gone to Palestine, is my point. So there were some, for sure, as from Russia, but most would have gone to the United States or elsewhere. Yeah. Oh, South America, too, and other places. Yeah. So languages, did they use Polish um, in the Polish part? Did they convert Great. mostly to German? I know they used Yiddish at home, but... The vast majority of Jews continued to speak Yiddish. Uh, as their main language, sometimes usually only language for, in terms of fluency, throughout the Austrian period. Increasingly, though, Polish was making headway. So among the elite, uh, the elite would have spoken German in the 60s and 70s, and Polish by the 80s and 90s. So the first Zionists uh, were mostly Polish speakers. The first Zionist newspapers were in Polish, uh, not in Hebrew, certainly not in Yiddish. The Yiddish papers come much later, ten, at least 10 years later anyway. Um, so the Polish was growing, but it was an elite phenomenon. The masses would continue to speak Yiddish into the 20th century as well. What? They would have known Polish from school, many of them, absolutely, um, increasingly so as the years went on, but they still would have known Yiddish as well. Again, I mean, there was an elite. I, I think if, if this is off, you know, al regel on one leg, but I think at the beginning of reconstituted Poland, uh, meaning after World War I, something like 20% of Galician or 22% like that was Polish, Polonized linguistically, right. which was much higher than anywhere else in, in Poland, but still minority, still minority. Um, so I think Yiddish still dominant throughout the Austrian period for sure. Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, other questions I can answer? One or two others? So some of the um, change... And, and the migration was because of, you know, the agrarian world dying out, wasn't it? It was economic? Well, it was the end of feudalism and a very painful transition to a modern capitalist economy. Uh, and in many ways, that wasn't so good for the Jews in Eastern Europe. That cost them in various ways. 
certain jobs were becoming um, obsolete. Others were being squeezed out by the co-op movement and others. Um, sorry? I was in Vietz. Vietz was a home for leather making and for making the barrels that the wine got stored in. So the prince owned the company and the Jews owned the bottling. Sure. Uh -huh. And all of that diminished because of different kinds of bottling and industrialization. Well, industrialization is always going to cause... Yeah, when you have railroad networks and so on are going to mean that small little shopkeepers and little manufacturers are not going to be able to compete necessarily. Uh, and there's also, again, co-op movement against them as well. I'm sorry? But there was this, there was a, all four of my grandparents are Galician, right? And they were all from the Polish side of Galicia. They were mm -hmm. all from uh, suburbs of Krakow, Dietz, uh, all those little towns. Sure. Borova, uh, Brzezov. <laughs> Brzezov, Brzezov, yeah. RZ in Polish pronounced like a Z. Yeah. And all of, all of those, they were in the silk lining business mm -hmm. and, of course, in the tailoring business. Sure. And they were all, um, that my, my great-grandparents and my grandparents owned land. They didn't own a lot of land, but they owned their own. They made their own vegetables, and they, they, they were self-sustaining. Mm -hmm. The grandpa was a, an architect. He built stone bridges for the Polish army. That's terrific. Uh, you know, in the early 1900s. You should look, you know, the, the Galician cities, uh, there are, you, all, you all know what the Yisker books are? The memoir books. So, yeah, after the Holocaust, there are approximately a thousand of these memory books that were created by survivors. The idea being, we had a town, here's what it was like. And Galician cities, there are many from Galician cities. If you read edition Hebrew, you can easily read them. They're all been scanned online, the New York Public Library. Can, you can read all of them. And if you don't read Yiddish and Hebrew, they're slowly being translated by a project called Jewish Gen uh, that you can read some in translation in English if you don't read Yiddish and Hebrew. Uh, and there's a lot of pictures and just wonderful sources. They're a gr uh, just an amazing source about uh, especially early 20th century uh, life in these places. Yeah, please. Krakow was in Galicia? Yes, Krakow was, it was the capital, so to speak, of Western Galicia. Exactly right. Uh, the San River is normally the dividing line between west and east. Of course, this is roughly speaking. Uh, the main city of Galicia was uh, then called Lemberg, under Poles Lvov, and today is Lviv. Don't go there and say Lemberg and don't say Lvov. That's uh, a social faux pas, you know, <laughs> bad, bad memories. Uh, so be careful there. Lemberg today now, I think of it as Lemberg because I'm in the Austrian period, and I think of it very neutrally. Jews called it Lemberg, same as the Germans, but uh, it was then turned back into Lemberg briefly by the Nazis. So Lemberg now has sort of that sense of occupation, of Nazi occupation. So Lemberg is definitely out. And Lviv is the Polish name. So that's out. It's Lviv. Lviv. Uh, I think in English, it's usually spelled L-V-I-V. L-V-I-V. Uh, by the way, it is, Lviv is a wonderful city. To, and and it's, I, I, it's, I, I know I keep selling it. I don't get a cut of any of their tourism. Uh, but I will tell you that it's... Um, extremely inexpensive right now. Unfortunately, Ukraine is struggling economically because of the occupation in the East, and the, the uh, exchange rate is such that it's actually quite affordable. Uh, even in Kiev, they often come to Lviv for the weekend because it's sort of a chic, nicer place to go, and it's quite inexpensive. So, well, everything. Uh, kosher food, harder to come by than in the East, though. You're on your own for that, but it is, uh, it is a, an amazing place. It is an amazing place. And if you have questions about it, uh, I encourage you all, you're welcome to contact me, and I can put you in touch with people locally if you're interested in, in making a trip, although it sounds like you have those contacts already. So you should, you, you should have a wonderful time. I recommend summer over winter. <laughs> I recommend summer over winter. <laughs> summer over winter in July, yeah. Last time I was there in May, it was still rainy and nasty. Yeah. Very nice. Very nice. Sure. Oh, wow. Wow, wow, wow. But these people that I'm researching now left Poland in 1919 mm -hmm. uh, after a terrible pogrom. They came in with the horses and, and whips and, and uh, destroyed all the bolts of cloth, and they hid their four-year-old son with my father under the bolts of cloth. There were terrible pogroms in, in uh, Ukraine after one, of course. A new book's about to come out about that by Jeff Eidlinger. Uh, although not primarily in the West, in Galicia, primarily further east, but also, also there as well. Did you want to ask one last question before we run out of time? I'm so sorry. Yeah, no, yeah. I was just curious. Um, for as far as like doing uh, genealogical research and stuff, if you want to go back there, 
Do you have any, you know, suggestions? Because a lot of the records, I think, are in Polish, and so I don't know if you have to, like, um, and I, 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 if you have to get someone who specializes. There, in I, you're in luck. There are. I, I, I won't waste the time of the podcast listeners, but there are, afterwards, I'll, I'll give you uh, leads. There are it is a vibrant society of of people interested in genealogy to Galicia on Facebook and beyond, and in publications and books they've put out. There was a certain one woman who was uh, especially active. She passed away recently, uh, and others have taken her place, or not taken her place, but tried to follow her work. Uh, so yes, I can put you in touch with people and resources. Uh, Galicianers are very, rightly so, proud of where they come from uh, and are very active in that kind of genealogy. Um, yeah, and there's actually a woman on the ground right now. Is a friend of mine who's doing, who's just who moved to Lviv. And she's spending her life uh, protecting cemeteries and doing other kinds of work to help protect this heritage. Uh, so yes, I can absolutely put you in touch with people, and, and we're, you're in luck. <laughs> you're in luck. Um, sorry? In Krakow, correct, by, by, led by Jonathan Weber, uh, which, is a which is a lovely place to go, for sure. Uh, yes. Um, yeah, there's so much, so much to do. Not too much for you know, one lecture in one week, even. Um, I'm seeing the sign from the back, but I think that time is out. Thank you all so much, and thank you for the questions and the story. I really enjoyed hearing your background story. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.